you're on a hot date with Jennifer Golden and Lauren Leonelli. And now, it's complicated. Hello, Master Daters. Welcome back for another episode of It's Complicated. Struggle is real when you're dating in the city. I'm Jen. I'm not Jen. So you know how you text your friends, not Jen, obviously, but you ask them for advice on what to wear on the first date, how to respond to a text from your crush, or to weigh in on whether you should post a certain pic on the socials? Yeah, well, that's what we call your village, Jen or not Jen included, and we think you can't date or relate without them. Join our village because we're serving you expert guests who are filled with tips and tricks that will take some of the guessing out of this damn game. And make sure you subscribe and share our pod with your friends so we can help make the village grow even bigger. You can find us at It's Complicated Podcast wherever you get your pods. And don't forget to tell your friends. Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. We all know we need to ask for what we want, but when it comes to actually doing it, we clam up. Are people going to think we're rude? Ew. Are we going to make someone feel bad by doing so? And when someone tells you what they want, do we actually want to hear it? I mean, not really. When Tom told you he didn't want to continue dating you, did you blame him and make up a bunch of reasons in your head about why he was being an ass? Or did you actually just respect that he told you what he really, really wanted and say la vie? All this honesty talk is hard and we need some direction. So we brought self-advocacy expert, on-air legal analyst and award-winning trial attorney Heather Hansen in to discuss her book, Advocate to Win, 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It. Heather is the founder and CEO of Advocate to Win, a consulting business where she's given thousands of clients the knowledge and tools they need to become better advocates to win support, attention, loyalty, and engagement for their big ideas. Heather's specialty as a lawyer was representing doctors, nurses, and hospitals when patients sued them. Yikes. By using her training in psychology and law, she distinguished herself as an award-winning attorney. Heather has consistently been ranked one of Pennsylvania's top 50 female attorneys and a Pennsylvania super lawyer. I don't know what that is, but obviously it's super. Heather was then inducted into the American College of Trial Lawyers, which recognizes the top 5% of trial lawyers nationwide. She's also an acclaimed legal analyst where she evaluates legal cases and their implications on national and regional television shows, including Today, Dr. Oz, Fox News, and Good Day Philadelphia. Although Heather was a very successful as a lawyer, obviously fighting for a living was taking its toll on her, and she realized that she was more passionate about counseling her clients than arguing on their behalf. She knew she wanted to move from Philadelphia to New York, try less cases, and spend more time as a broadcast legal analyst. But after so many years of advocating for other people, Heather had to learn how to advocate for herself, too. She noticed that she struggled with asking for what she wanted and even doubted she was worthy of the extraordinary advocacy she had given to her clients. When she finally persuaded her inner jury to put herself first, her life changed. She moved to New York, left an unhappy relationship, and started anchoring at the Law and Crime Network. She then began an international keynote speaking career and wrote her first book, The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself. Through coaching and her books, Heather is on a mission to teach women how to persuade their inner and outer juries. She wants women to understand what it means to advocate for themselves and apply the techniques she learned as a lawyer to all areas of their lives so that they can get what they want and deserve. She's an award-winning attorney who's going to cross-examine our heads and rest the case on how to ask for what you want and get it. Welcome to the show, Heather. I am so happy to be here with you guys. We are so happy to have you here. There's a lawyer in the house. That means that it's about to get real. Yes. 
which is how we do it on this show. We like the real stuff, okay? We like, you know, I mean, we like like the love romantic stuff too, but at the end of the day, we want to know like what you we need to hear, like what's the hard stuff. Usually that starts with like the voice within yourself. And we know you talk a lot about that inner jury and we're going to get to that too. But thank you so much for being here. We're going to start off because we ask everybody this question. What is your relationship status? Single in a relationship or it's complicated? I am single, happily single, but also happily looking. I love that. That is, you can be both things, you know, people. Like a lot of people don't understand that. And I think you can be single and like loving it, but also like dating and looking for somebody. That's how you would describe yourself. That's it. Absolutely right. I wish I could say the same as far as the happily looking. I want to be happily looking, but the process is so daunting that it takes all of the happiness out of it for me. But in theory, I'm like, wow, think of all the potential. I could find this most amazing person. I'm, you know, probably my best self at this point. So hopefully I attract that person and the world is my oyster. But I'm like, all right, I continue to improve day in and day out. And I'm still waiting for this person to show up. So I think I balance between the happily looking and the like impatience of looking. I think that's a great uh, example of where your inner jury is choosing. And listen, we all choose things that don't serve us. But I think the more that you can see yourself as happily looking, the better you look to those potential partners and the happier you are in general. Well, how would like, okay, because I think that makes so much sense. And I believe that, you know, like you are the sort of like vibes that you put out, right? And if you are happily looking for somebody, then you're probably going to find like a happy situation potentially. But if you realistically though, Heather, like, can you still be happily looking with like hope, but have moments of like, oh, that was annoying. And then that can kind of like get to you because under the umbrella of all of the emotions of life, like that happens clearly. Like what would you tell yourself in those moments of like just like discouragement or hopelessness, like, and to keep yourself in the lane of happily looking, but like, of course you're going to come across bumps in the road. Like, what do you tell yourself? I, what I tell myself. So I also have a certification as a life coach. And, and one of the things that we talk about a lot in that certification is life is 50, 50, everybody's life. People who are happily married have half the time they have bad days. And people who are happily single, half the time they have bad days. And you're absolutely right. Happily looking does not mean that every day I put on my rainbow outfit and go out and skip through the world. But I think that when you recognize that, oh, this is just one of my bad days, and it means that maybe I'll have one less of them coming up this week, or this is just one of my bad dates. And that means I have one less bad date to get through. Because I think that if we just remember everybody's got it 50-50, then rich people, poor people, married people, happily married people, unhappily married people, then it's a little easier to bear. And I think that does make sense. It doesn't make it feel like, oh, when you have a bad day, now what? Like, how am I supposed to get through this? I am not even can't even acknowledge that that happened. And I think that Jen is really good at dating. And that doesn't mean that everyone else is or that she's not going to come across someone who's like annoying or it's like sucked or whatever. But like, 
I think you could probably just tell yourself that too, right? Like, let's say you're outgoing like Jen, you practice, you you read Heather's books and you practice self-help and you work on yourself with therapy and things like that, like Jen does, for example, then can, couldn't you just fall back on that thought of like, I am a good person. I'm doing the work. I am happily looking and I'm excited about finding somebody. So just because this person came along my path, I'm just going to chalk that up to like, that person's, it was a bad date. And it's probably going to happen more often than not. But at least then I can look forward to potentially a good one coming up soon because they can't like all be bad. Yeah, I think so. I think there are days though, that you can persuade yourself to believe that. And there are days that you can't. You know, it's that inner jury part of us. And ideally, you have more days that you can persuade yourself to believe that it's going to be just fine. You know, a belief is simply a thought that you repeat and back up with evidence. So part of it is finding evidence that you will find someone and or be okay in the meantime. But I think that for Jen and I, and I know, Lauren, you're happily uh, coupled, but yeah. for Jen and I, you know, there are days that you believe that and there are days that you don't. And that's okay. I think that just knowing that that's okay and it's human and it's part of the experience makes it a little bit easier in and of itself. And wouldn't you say also just the fact that the awareness you might have can swing from one side to the other means that it's not so dire? Because if you know on one day that there is hope and the next day that there isn't, you know it can swing back to the hope side. So, I mean, for me, for instance, with dating apps, it's very much that same pattern. It's wow, there's so many options out there, so many single people to meet. Um, this is great, endless supply. And then, you know, as I'm going through it and I'm matching or not matching or going out with people and then it being not exactly what I had hoped, I then swing to the side of like, man, maybe it's just not for me and I'm not going to find that person. And then I open the app back up, back up again and I'm like, wait, so many people are there. Wow. <laughs> so I feel a little schizophrenic or, you know, imbalanced, if you will, because I'm like, how can I be both people so hopeful and so hopeless? But I think the fact that there is hope at all. Well, that is balance, though, Jen, don't you think? Right, Heather? Like the fact that you can be both those things is balance. And I think that's good. That shows that you're there's optimism there. Yeah, I think balance is a verb. You know, balance is is movement. Um, I love the analogy that when a ballerina is on point, she is always constantly moving her feet back and forth. She's never completely still. And so, yes, you are going back and forth. And knowing that yesterday you had those positive feelings gives you evidence that you can feel that way and that you will feel that way again. And I think that we're fortunate that we have those positive feelings to look back on and see that we can believe that they will happen again. Yeah, because any even like out of bad things comes good things. And in the moment, that's never satisfying. We all freaking know that, right? Like when it's like, you're crying because someone broke up with you, or they didn't call you back. And some friends like, well, when one door closes, another (laughs) one opens, and you're like, screw you, that is not freaking helping me right now. Like I'm pissed. But it's true, though, you know, it's true. So like, when there's like a major life change or just like a little thing that happens, like it can, it's like it, you have to be able to tell yourself somewhere in there, like this could be like pivoting me into something great, right? Like, or something good is going to come out of this, right? Like, so this kind of happened to you, Heather, like there was a major life change you had where you like changed careers and you moved out of a city and you got out of an unhealthy relationship. Like how did the 
especially unhealthy relationship part that you left, like how did that pivot you into this like beautiful life you have today? And like, what did you tell yourself in the moment to like get through that? Cause that's a lot. Yeah. And I think that in relationships, especially, so for 20 years, I was a trial attorney advocating for my clients in the courtroom and doing it very well. You know, I, I was very successful as a trial attorney. I was terrible at advocating for myself. And that ran the gamut. I was bad at advocating for myself for raises and for resources and for support at work. And I was bad at advocating for myself in my relationship and for better boundaries and support from him. And I had one day that I just decided that it was time for me to start using some of the tools that I use to advocate for my clients and advocate for myself. And so I ended that relationship and I ended it in a way that we remain good friends, but I did it by starting to advocate for myself, starting to ask different questions and present evidence and to build my credibility with myself and to then in that same way, build my credibility with him. Because for a very long time, I would tell him, no, I'm not coming there or I'm not doing this thing. And then I would do it. And so I lost credibility with him and me. And that I think is a great loss when you lose credibility with yourself. So all of those things that I wasn't doing for myself sort of culminated one day. And then it wasn't like I woke up the next day and all of a sudden got everything I wanted. It's a process to start advocating for yourself. And it's a process to start asking for what you want in a way that makes you likely to get it. And sometimes, you know, my definition of win, the book the name of my book is Advocate to Win, is to receive something positive because you've earned it. So the breakup, you know, while that's weird, it, it ended up being something positive. It was a change in my life that ended up being positive and I earned it by advocating. But I think that we all have to find a way to see what we really want, know what we really want, and then know how to ask for it. Definitely. I mean, I think in terms of like my previous relationships, I can speak to that. Like I tried to advocate for myself or I'd go and ask for something I wanted, but then I'd be met with any kind of response that was negative. And so I would try and adapt Mm -hmm. to avoid losing the relationship versus to continue getting what I want. And it's not like I was asking for crazy things. It would be like a date night or um, something related to the relationship or putting us first for like a moment in time versus the external things that the person I was with was more focused on. And so I I think when you also don't advocate for yourself, you tend to explode or act out or not your best self because you'd feel possibly like you're not being heard. That's right. I love that you use the word adapt because I see with my coaching clients so often that they just adapt and adapt and adapt and adapt. And then they resent it because to your point, Jen, you start to resent it. You start to feel as though this isn't fair. And rather than speaking up for yourself, you just do all the things that the, you know, if you guys are familiar with Dr. John Gottman's work at the Love Lab, he talks about being able to predict whether or not couples are going to break up or divorce. And one of the things he talks about is contempt. I know I was rolling my eyes at my partner and showing signs of contempt. And a lot of that was because I wasn't asking for what I wanted in a way that was effective. And then how could I expect to get it? And then instead of talking it through, I would get resentful and contemptuous. It's a terrible cycle. But one thing that you said that also really struck me is that so many times we women implicitly ask for what we want 
or we assume that they should know, our partners should know what we want. You know, they should know that we want a present for our birthday. They should know what we want for our birthday. They should know that we want to go out to dinner or that we want to stay home. And because we think they should know when we actually explicitly ask, we feel like we've asked more than once. And then we get even more mad because we feel like we're sounding like a nag and we're begging for something and acting needy instead of just asking once clearly and effectively. Yeah, I think that women feel like they're supposed to be, there's, you know, this societal myth that we're taught to be polite and ladylike and all of these words that then when we, it does kind of stifle us because then when we go to like express how we feel, we're scared because it feels like we're going to be thought of or judged as like a bitch or as bossy or like you said, nagging. So how do you ask for it effectively right away when there's this inner voice or inner jury telling us like, be nice, be sweet. Like, don't, don't be, look, don't look too desperate. Don't talk about that. Let, you're going to look like annoying and he's going to go the other way, especially for women who are like in the beginning process of dating. I think that's even harder there because not only is it very important in that moment to like set up those boundaries and express how you're feeling, but then you're also like in this weird, vulnerable, like limbo where you're trying to say what you want, but you're also not trying to like, look like you're ready to get married. Cause it'll come off that way. And I think a lot of women get confused. If I say what I want, it's going to look like I'm telling him, like, I want to settle down and get married right now. And that's not the case. How do you find that balance of like saying effectively what you want when calming that inner voice of like, be nice, be polite, all that BS that we tell ourselves. Well, so the inner jury that I talk about, it's funny, whenever I work with women and I talk about the inner jury, they think their inner jury is the part of them that is judgmental and sort of critical. And that's not the case. In the courtroom, the jury doesn't even speak and they certainly don't criticize. They listen and then they choose. So your inner jury is the part of you that's choosing. You've got one voice to your point that is telling you, you know, he might run, be nice. If you don't do what he wants, you're not going to keep him. That's one attorney arguing for one side. You want to give the other side a voice. So there's also an argument to be made that you should be yourself and that being yourself is the most effective way to truly meet a partner who's going to love you for who you are. And you want to give that other side a voice and then feel which side feels better to your inner jury. Does it feel better to believe that you have to be nice, you have to be polite, you have to be what he wants, you have to bend into some sort of morph of who you are to become what he wants you to be? Or does it feel better to believe that you can be yourself and meet a good match? And whichever feels better should be the part that you choose. And so ideally your inner jury is choosing a different voice, but that takes practice because we have been, as you guys said, we have been trained to believe that negative attorney in our head that's arguing for conformity and being polite and not being honest and pretending. Well, now the next question then is, is is there sort of like a scale or any sort of like, additional sidebarring we might want to do with ourselves. Um, I'm trying to use a legal reference, but listen, <laughs> end of the day, and I, I, I can't be held accountable for my words at this point. But, you know, like, 
Are there any sorts of tips you have for evaluating what's worth advocating for versus what might be something you shouldn't and actually might want to shut your trap at that point? And to piggyback on that, how many times is too many times to advocate? So let's talk about advocate, right? So the meaning of the word advocate is to publicly support something. So if you say to your partner, you know, I'd really like to go to this restaurant for dinner, you're advocating for that restaurant. Advocating does not need to be like jumping up and down and and orating and all of these types of things. You advocate every day. You advocate for each other. You advocate for this podcast. Lauren, you advocate for your child. You know, it is something that we do all the time. But my hope from my book and my work is that you'll get effective at it so that you'll start asking for what you want in a way that makes you likely to get it. And that doesn't mean, you know, setting, drawing the line in the sand and not allowing anyone to cross it. If winning is to receive something positive because you've earned it, everyone can win. Everyone can receive something positive. And that's a big part of the answer to your question. You sort of want to see the world from the other person's perspective so you can figure out how you can both win. And then it doesn't seem so contentious. What if the person you're advocating for yourself to cannot see your side and tends to go in a more tit for tat kind of way? Like, let's just give a real life example. If you, let's say um, you say, I would really, you know, love it if you could um, make some time for us to plan date nights. I'm just using my personal experience, obviously. I'm still upset. But uh <laughs> So, you know, let's say I say that and then the other person says, um, you ask for too much or what are you talking about? We just did that thing that one time three months ago. You always ask for these things and I always do them or like, what if they just come back at you with a returning argument and you actually no longer are being heard because now you're forced to defend yourself and your past versus what you're currently asking for? So there's two things there. There's one that my clients have found really effective, and that is to trade your defensiveness for curiosity. Because as soon as you start to feel defensive, like at least for me, I I, I was a defense attorney, right? I know about being defensive. And um, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie's work, but she talks a lot about putting down your defenses. And it's also all over the course in miracles. But you know, when when I feel defensive, my hips tighten, my legs tighten, my jaw tightens, and I am very closed off. And if I can be curious and actually say, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe I did ask about that a lot. And it doesn't mean you're going to give in. It's just the beginning. Because I know this from the courtroom. I can't change a jury's perspective until I understand it. And you're not going to change your partner's perspective about date night until you understand it. So to trade your defensiveness for curiosity and think to yourself, huh, I wonder why he thinks that. I wonder why am I asking for a lot of date nights? And if I'm not, why does he see it that way? Does he feel pressure? Does he not know how to plan a date? Does he feel as though I'm never going to be satisfied no matter what he plans? And then you can approach it in a different way. Once you see it from a different perspective, there's a great exercise that I use with my clients that I call the victim victor villain exercise because in this fight jen you could see yourself as the victim like he never takes me out on dates and i have to beg him and this is not the way that it should be and poor me and you could also see yourself as the victor like i am going to get him to take me on dates (laughs) no matter what 
But you could also see yourself as the villain, right? He's happy just sitting at home watching TV with his love by his side and his comfy clothes. And here you are trying to make things more difficult. When you can see things through all of these different perspectives, it makes you more creative. And then you start, so perspective is one of the tools of an advocate. Another tool is questions. So you start asking him questions. And one of my favorite questions um, is, begins with tell me. So tell me why you think I asked for too many dates. Tell me when I was over enthusiastic about going out. Tell me why that is not fun for you. With true curiosity, you know, not just to sort of mark a box. Um, the tell me question, I have to tell you because this is uh, always really re resonates with people. Judge Rosemary Aquilino was the judge in the Larry Nasser case. He was the um, doctor accused of molesting all of those young gymnasts. And he was on going through a hearing and I was anchoring at the Law and Crime Network. And we only intended to cover it for a day because only a few women were coming forward and most of them didn't want to use their names and their faces. By the end of the hearing, over a hundred women came forward and almost all of them used their names and their faces. And I watched, because I worked that whole week, and I attributed it to one question that Judge Aquilina asked them. She didn't ask them, what happened to you? She didn't ask them, why are we here? She didn't ask them, tell me what I need to know. She looked at each woman and she said, tell me what you want me to know. And they told her different stories, but they got to choose. And so I think sometimes saying to your partner, tell me what you want me to know about how you feel about date night. Tell me what you want me to know about how this could be a better endeavor for both of us. And then you know, right, Jen, you know whether that's something that's going to work for you. If he says, well, what I want you to know is I don't want to take you on dates, then it comes time to start advocating for yourself in a different way. And it may mean it's time to win by leaving. But you're not going to know that until you understand his perspective. And you're certainly not going to change. So then once you 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 do that because you're having like an open line of communication about like how everyone's feeling. And let's just say your partner answers that question with something like kind of neutral. Like I, not, not something really negative. Like I don't want to take you on dates. Something that keeps the conversation going that leaves you in a position where now you need to advocate for what you want, right? Like what would be the first step to then, presenting this idea of what you want effectively like if if let's just say we're using the example of like I want to go on more dates how would you what would be an example of how you could then say okay like I hear what you're saying but this is what I want type of a thing because you talk about this too it's not just about your words that you say it's like your body language and like your tone and all of that plays into it is that part of like one of the first steps to like communicating what you want, like effectively? Yeah, I think that it is. But I also think, again, um, in the book, reception comes before presentation. Because reading his body language, his tone of voice, his facial expressions is going to tell you whether you're in a good position to be asking for what you want. You know, if he's come back from a tough day at work, and he's in a bad mood and gruff, and you can hear in his voice that he's cranky, it's probably not the best date to start at the time to start asking for your date nights, you want to save it for a time when he's a little bit more relaxed. So reading him is an effective way to advocate, and then presenting your case 
effectively means using the right words, seeing things from his perspective, using questions to sort of suss out where you might find a meeting of the minds, and then presenting some evidence. And it's not evidence like, this is how many times you've taken me out in the past week, but rather, you know, for example, if you know that his love language is um, words of affirmation, then you talk to him about how good it makes you feel and how much you appreciate him when you've had a date night. If you know that his perspective is that date nights can get expensive, you find evidence of ways that you can go on date nights that don't have to cost a lot of money. Again, seeing things from his perspective, but still getting what you want, just finding a way to get it in a way that resonates with him. And that makes total sense. And I know this is probably going to be hard to answer like really specifically, but like at what point, if you're coming back with great like pieces of evidence, like, yeah, you know what? Going out to dinner is really expensive. Like I just like want to take a walk with you and look at the sunset and maybe we can bring a bottle of wine with us from that we already have and we can just sip the wine and then we can like drive back home and watch a movie. Like that would be so fun. That's it. That doesn't even cost anything. And then you're met with like resistance. How many times, I mean, I know people are like smart. You can tell like if someone's just putting you off because they're being a jerk or whatever, but like, is there like a telltale sign from somebody? Like if you've, presented some evidence like a couple of times in one argument then just drop it like is there something that you can tell somebody to like this is the end point um you shouldn't have to advocate for like more than five times or something because then you start to feel like an idiot right yeah and i think that i think we're moving into so the ninth tool is negotiation and that's really what we're talking about here right so negotiation is one of the tools of an advocate and you have to decide this is why the inner jury always comes first Because you have to decide what are your non-negotiables. Like if it is a non-negotiable that you go on X number of date nights a week or a month, then, you know, I don't think that you keep pushing. If your partner is definitely closed off to that opportunity, then you might want to wait until the next night and you want to read their body language, read their tone of voice, read their facial expressions, read their responses. But I also think that you need to know where your non-negotiables are and then negotiate. Say to him, you know, I know it's not your favorite thing. I know it's not something you're open to, but I don't love going to sporting events. I know you do, and I know you want me to go with you. So if we can do more date nights, then we can also do more sporting events. And then that way you'll feel happy in this relationship and I'll feel happy in this relationship. You know, so. If you do that, though, like, and it's sort of when I hear you say that, it sounds a little not tit for tat, but kind of because you're compromising or negotiating and it feels very much like I'll only do this. And then, like, I don't know, it takes me back to that movie, The Breakup, where, like, Jennifer Aniston says to Vince Vaughn, like, I want you to want to go to the ballet. And it's more that, like, you want the other person to want to do that for you and not because of the negotiation? Like, where are you at some point removing the romance from it when you are saying like, I'll do this for you if you do that for me? Well, and that's where you have to decide your non-negotiables, right? So much of the work that I do is helping women know what they want. Because most of the time you're getting what you want. If you want something bad enough, you get it. And if you really want to go on date nights, then Maybe you want that more than you want him to want to. You're not always going to get everything you want at the same time in life, at work, in love, in any of the the things that, that we deal with in life. 
And That's so- a bummer. I'm just well, putting that out there. It is a bummer, but I I can interject for a second. My therapist, who I love and trust and is very smart says to me, yeah, but you know what? Sometimes like if you get what you want, that's okay. It doesn't really matter how it comes to you. Her example was I have a teenage son and I want him to take out the trash. If I ask him to take out the trash and I have to ask him more than once because he clearly doesn't want to. And he rolls his eyes and it's like, fine. Like I can't really complain that he rolls his eyes and says, fine. Like he still did what I want. Right. And I was like, yeah, I mean, okay, it's kind of, it was always a hard pill for me to swallow when she would give me that advice. Like, sometimes they're not going to want to do it, but you, they're still willing to do it for you. So you should just, like, you got to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I don't think everything should feel like that in a relationship. But if it's like that, sometimes you think that's fine, right, Heather? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a great example. You want your son to take out the trash. Do you also want him to want to take out the trash? Because that might be a step too far. You know, you want to go on date nights. And I I understand that we also want them to want to go on date nights, but I'm sure that there's things that they want us to want and enjoy that we don't. Part of relationships is compromise. I mean, they want us to give them blowjobs and like, sorry, but maybe we don't really want to do that. I mean, I don't mean to be getting, but I'm just, I'm serious. Like sometimes it's like, that's all for you, dude, because nobody here else is enjoying this except for you. And I think that that's right. I think that that's a great example that, you know, everyone in relationships is doing things at times that they don't want to do. And, you know, you bend and you, you just want to bend so far that you don't break. And so really being aware of, you know, it's, I'm negotiable on how many date nights I have, but I'm non-negotiable that it has to be at least one, one a month, like sort of figure that out for yourself so that you can know where you are willing to push and where you don't have to push. But I think that when we set ourselves up for the idea that not only do I want him to do these things, but I want him to want to do these things, it can it can set our set us up for heartache. Yeah, and that I mean, yeah, it can. You have to be, I think, realistic in the compromise there. But like, can you? We kind of just touched on this, but can you touch on it a little bit more? Like for the presentation of these things, we were talking about like how to say what you want and all of that. Like, are there a couple little tips you can give, like for body language, tone, and facial expressions? Like just to kind of tell yourself in the moment, so that you can have like a little checklist. Like, okay, I'm about to express how I'm feeling and what I'm wanting. Like, maybe I should keep these things in mind. Yeah, I think that the most important thing is to protect your energy before that. So if you're going into the conversation angry, frustrated, disappointed, your energy is going to show that. There's a great study out of Yale that says that you can read more about a person's emotion from their tone of voice than from their body language and facial expression combined. So we think that we're getting so much from body language, and and we may be, we can talk about that in a minute. But your tone of voice is relaying your emotion, especially to your partners. You guys will actually like this study. Um, There's another study that said that females could predict with pretty good certainty whether or not their partner was cheating on them by their tone of voice. And so your tone of voice, you know, a lot of my clients will be like, oh, I can't control my tone of voice. Well, you can control your breathing. You can control your modulation, like how fast you speak, where you stress words, etc., But also, and most importantly, you can control your energy. And so when you're angry, your voice sounds different than when you're tired, than when you're excited, than when you're happy, than when you 
have just had great sex, right? Your voice sounds different. And so the more that you can go into the conversation where you're going to be asking for something that you want with a positive, loving energy, that energy he will feel. Same thing with your body language. When you're, again, like I said, trade defensiveness for curiosity. When you're defensive, you're, you tend to be clenched. My yoga teacher used to always say shoulders as earrings. And I can feel that when I feel defensive or stressed. When you're relaxed and positive and feeling good, your body language is more open. Your facial expressions are more open. And whether he knows it or not, he's being impacted by all of those things. And so your job is to go into those conversations when you're feeling at your best, most confident, um, you know, most credible. I use that, that term. That's one of the tools. Because if you don't believe in yourself and the fact that you're worthy of what you're asking for, you're never going to be able to make him believe. Yeah, that I think is you it start. I mean, there's so many conversations we have on this show with experts all across the board. And it always starts like within, right? And that's like that inner jury that you're talking about, or like people say like self-love and and those kind of things to like get someone going on the start of like finding love out within someone else. Because if you're not feeling good within or feeling loving or whatever, yeah, if you enter into a conversation and you're already annoyed, like that's going to come off. So you're going to give off that vibe. So you just kind of have to like either tell yourself what, like, wait until tomorrow or do you sort of tell yourself like okay take a deep breath control your tone of voice like put a smile on your face and then start talking like that's maybe what you would tell yourself right yeah i mean in my first book the elegant warrior i have a chapter that's called um don't fake it till you make it show you show it till you grow it i don't think that you can fake a happy tone of voice if you're unhappy I think you've got to find something inside that allows you to show that little bit of happiness, that little bit of contentment in the relationship. And then as you show it, it gets oxygen from your partner and then it grows. So I think rather than like taking a deep breath and saying, okay, I'm going to power my way through this, maybe meditate, maybe do some yoga, maybe go for a run, maybe read a self-help book maybe have a glass of wine. I mean, whatever it is that allows you to find that thing inside that reminds you of why you're in this relationship, why you're happy with this partner, why you know that you deserve what you're asking for. And then you have that little bit of something to show and then it can grow. So I don't think powering through is the answer. I don't think approaching it like it's a trial to win is the answer, but rather finding that little piece inside of you that makes you feel happy and content and then letting it shine is going to get you the best results. Man, it, this is like what we all wish we knew way back when. And, and probably a lot of people are wondering, would this have helped previous conversations with relationships or would this have helped keep us together during tough times when, you know, we didn't have the proper tools to handle these conversations and probably did explode or probably advocated and then gave up or probably advocated the wrong way or went about things wrong. But like, this is just so necessary and it's wild that it takes, you know, blending the law and how you operate in trial with relationships and love, because you wouldn't necessarily think that those two things can be symbiotic, but 
it really is more just a communication strategy than anything. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I got my psychology degree and I feel like that was the most helpful thing about being a trial attorney because it's all just relationships. You know, it's all just for me in the courtroom, it's understanding the jury's perspective and then working to change it. Um, and the jury's perspective, you know, I represented doctors when their patients sued them. So the jury always saw the world from the patient's perspective. And I'd never had a doctor on my jury. So my job was always to change their perspective. And your job in relationships a lot of times is to change the other person's perspective. And so the tools that we use in the courtroom are the exact same tools that you can use with your outer jury of your partner, your kid who doesn't want to take out the trash, uh, your students, your clients, your customers, anyone you want to persuade or influence. And how do you, like communication, you know, is hard and this is why this is a really like hot topic for almost any kind of relationship, but especially like loving relationships. How do you, and even when you're in the courtroom, like things come, you, you've done all this work, right? You're like, okay, I'm in a good place. I've like read my partner's energy. Like I'm going to, now I'm going to like, here's the thing that I want. I'm going to present it. And you're, everything's all like you checked all those boxes off. Once you're in it, the scary part is, and I think it's why a lot of people are nervous about like approaching conversations like this. Cause they're like, well, if he says this, what am I going to say? Or if he says this, what am I going to say? Right? So this conversation can go like 400 different ways. What are tips for keeping it on track? Because that's, I think where people kind of get overwhelmed and just like, don't advocate for themselves. That would be one of the reasons why you would just keep it to yourself. Cause like, I don't know what he's going to say. And I'm not prepared. Like, I'm not going to know what to say after that. I'm going to get like flustered or mad and I'm not going to be able to keep my cool. And I'm not going to be able to keep that same energy. How, what are some tips for keeping the combo on track so you can get what you want in the end? Cause a lot of conversations go in circles and then you arguing about arguing and nothing is accomplished. Yeah, it's a really great point. And I think part of it, you know, when I cross-examine an expert on the other side, that's the fear, right? I need to keep it on track because if I lose control of this back and forth, then I will lose. But you also have to have enough confidence in your preparation, in what you want, in what you're asking for, in the work you've done to get there, to know you can handle it if it goes off the tracks. And it's the same in a relationship. You have to have enough confidence in your partner, in yourself, in your ability to be without your partner if you had to get there, to be able to handle it if it goes off the tracks. Because if you're constantly thinking, I need to keep this on the tracks, I need to keep this on the tracks, then first of all, you might be missing out on all kinds of things that you could learn if it went off the tracks. So at depositions, we ask questions so that at trial, we can ask different types of questions. At depositions, I try to ask, I let it go off the tracks like crazy because I want all the information I can get to help me win at trial. And there's going to be some conversations with your partner where going off the tracks is the best possible thing that can happen because you're going to learn new things about your partner that will help you to see their perspective and eventually ask for what you want more effectively. I think that, you know, when we try to control these situations so painstakingly, we end up missing a lot. It reminds me in the first book, in The Elegant Warrior, I talk about how young lawyers are always looking for objections. And so they will object to all kinds of questions, which is great and it's fun for them, but they're missing out on the answers that might hold the key to the win. 
And so you've got to trust yourself and your relationship and your partner enough to know that you can handle whatever they have to say. It's just so funny because, you know, you have these conversations alone by yourself first before you bring any sort of sensitive subject to someone else. We all do it, whether we bark at them in the car and we expect them to respond a certain way or we have this conversation in the shower. It's basically like the thing that builds anxiety is knowing that leading up to having this conversation, we have this whole thing planned out and foresee it going any which way that, you know, you've had happen in the past, potentially like patterns. But then when you have it, it goes off course. So you really can't control it, just like you said. And I think sometimes people feel unprepared for that once it starts going off course and then forget to advocate for themselves in the process because maybe their script can't be followed the way that they had hoped it would be. But are there like simple tricks to sort of take you back to your uh, deal breakers and your non-negotiables where you can just sort of have it top of mind, but also still be able to listen? Because how do you take in that new information, but still hold your own? Well, I think that a lot of it has to do with the difference between reacting and responding. And I know that you've talked about this with other guests, but for me in the courtroom, it was something that I learned so plainly. It was so clear to me. Because when the other side is questioning the expert against us, that expert is saying terrible things about my client. And the way that the rules work, I'm not allowed to do anything about it. I just have to sit there and listen. I can't jump up. I can't, I mean, I could object, but it's not really effective. I can't start asking questions to counter what they said. I just have to wait and listen. And the inclination is to sort of shake your head and start writing your papers and making a big fuss. But if you do, the jury often thinks that you're just crazy and sort of a drama king or queen. I have no choice but to wait and take deep breaths and organize my thoughts. And then by the time that it gets to be my turn, I can respond very effectively because everything is sort of laid out. And I think that that is a forced moment between what I want to do, the reaction, the emotional reaction, and the response. If we can allow ourselves more of those moments I think that a lot of times we think that the fight, and I'm putting that in quotes, has to be won in this moment. And it's most likely not going to be won, especially if your win includes something positive for both of you. So often what we think of as arguments really have to be discussions. You know, argument is the last tool of an advocate in the book for a reason. It's the last resort. If you've gotten to the point where you're arguing, it's a difficult place to get out of. You know, most arguments are best decided by a third party. So if I'm arguing with opposing counsel, the judge decides. And if you're arguing, you know, if you're in a divorce situation and you're arguing over something, then the judge or the mediator decides. But if you're arguing with your partner, you're really at a bad place and you're better off using the other tools first, using the tools of choice, what I call elegance, words, credibility, perspective, evidence, all the other things that we've talked about so that you're not at the point where you're sort of yelling at each other and losing focus on what it is that you really want. That is so helpful to know and tell yourself in the beginning. The argument is the last place you're going to you would want to end up like 
if you at least know that going into it and not be afraid right away, like as soon as I open my mouth, we're going to be in an argument. If you tell yourself and approach it with that energy, like the argument is going to be avoided by all of these tools and tips and tricks that I have for myself. But that's also like the last place this conversation is going. I have control over partially where this conversation is going. And I'm telling myself right now, that's the last place it's going to end up. So we're not going to get there. If you kind of enter it in that way, enter into it that way, it's a little helpful and feels a little less scary. And like you mentioned, it's the last chapter in your book for a reason. That makes so much sense. And please, Heather, tell everyone about this book that we've mentioned so many times. It's being released. Where can they find it? What's it called? All of the things. It's called Advocate to Win, 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It. And I just want people to remember that when, you know, because a lot of times people are like win and lose, someone has to lose. It's not that way. The definition is to receive something positive because you have earned it. So that something positive can be a better relationship, more insight into your partner, more insight into yourself, what you want in relationships, what you want from your next relationship. So all of those things. Um, The book is available on May 25th. It is available anywhere that books are sold. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop, all of your local indie booksellers should have it. And it has the 10 tools of an advocate. So we've talked about a lot of them. The first is what I call elegance because the root of the word elegance is to choose, just like the word elect. Um, And I believe that your choices are the first part of advocating. So elegance or choice is the first. Words are the next one. The words that we use when we talk to ourselves and our partners are so important when we're advocating because every word has meaning to us and them. And so choosing them well is important. The next tool is perspective. We've talked about that, changing our own perspective and then looking at things through his or hers so that we can change their perspective. The next is questions. Um, We talked about tell me what you want me to know. There's a lot of questions you can use to build connections. The next is credibility, believing in yourself, believing yourself, and then also proving yourself to your partner that if you make him a promise, you're gonna keep it. If you set an expectation, you're gonna meet it. Um, The next is evidence. And that's not like, you know, let me keep a list of all the times that my son didn't take out the trash (laughs) so that I can prove to him that he hasn't done it. But you know, evidence of the ways that we work well together, evidence of the way that I respond positively when you do these things. You know, anything can be evidence to help you prove your case. And then the next is reception. That's reading body language, tone of voice, and facial expressions. And then the next is presentation. That's giving it, tone of voice, body language, facial expressions. Number nine is negotiation. And number 10 is argument. That is such a clear, awesome list. And I hope everyone was taking notes. And if you weren't taking notes, you know where to find the book so that you can highlight and remember all these things. And if you're having an argument or getting upset, stop, take a deep breath and go read this book and get yourself back on track. Um, Heather, this is so awesome. So helpful. So many things. I mean, we've only just touched like the tip of the iceberg here, but so many helpful, just little tools for everyone just listening now. And I'm sure everyone's going to want to dive more into this. So you can find Heather's book anywhere you can get books starting May 25th and remind everyone where they can find you on social media as well, Heather. Sure. So I play most often on Instagram where it's I'm Heather Hansen with an E-N. Um, I'm also on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm on all the things. On Twitter, I'm also, I'm Heather Hansen. But Instagram is my favorite to sort of post ideas from the book and stories and all that fun stuff. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. And everyone, I think, you know, even if you're not in a relationship, but you're dating or you are taking a time out from dating because you might be in the hopeless phase, not the hopeful phase, you should read this book between now and when you start dating again, because you will be set up for success to advocate to win. And also, while you're at it on your to-do list, don't forget to tune in to It's Complicated, where we talk more dating and relationshipy stuff. And if you want to join the class of master daters, which you obviously do, don't forget to follow us on social media at Complicated Show. And It's Complicated wherever you get your podcasts to rate and comment on our show. And don't forget to follow me at Lauren Leonelli on all the social meds. And you can find me at Jennifer Golden on all the social meds. Love you long time. You're on a hot date with Jennifer Golden and Lauren Leonelli. And now it's complicated. <laughs>